Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, make sure we get our focus on the Word and be ready to take in the Word. So we will have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a few moments to give you an opportunity to admit or acknowledge your sins to God in the privacy of your own priesthood in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this morning to worship you through the study of your word, to have fellowship around the teaching of your word, for this is the highest form of worship and the meaning of true Christian fellowship, that our fellowship is indeed in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that at the instant that we put our faith alone in Christ alone, We were baptized by means of the Holy Spirit into his body so that we are all one in Christ. Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ, all of the spiritual assets that you provided us for us by means of your grace at the instant of our salvation, and that these assets give us the ability to face any situation, handle any circumstance, deal with any problem, face any challenge, and to be able to apply your word consistently in our lives that we might advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you to the maximum. Father, now at this time in our nation's uh, history, as we face this war in Iraq and the continuing war against terrorism, we continue to pray for our president, for the military, for our leaders, that you would give them wisdom and skill as they prosecute this war and as they Uh, protect this nation. We pray that you would give our our leaders uh, the skill to discern what information they receive is of value and that which isn't. We pray that the enemy would make mistakes. We pray that you would protect those from this congregation who are in the Middle East, that you would watch over them, keep them safe. We pray for their families that are here, that you would 
uh, give them uh, a peace that they would trust you, rely upon you, relax in your provision, knowing that, that you are in complete control. Father, we do pray for us as a congregation that we may continue to be steadfast in our study of your word and that we might continue to make doctrine the highest priority in our life. Now, as we study these things this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the principles that we will uncover from the Old Testament. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we are in verses 1 through 6. However, I don't want you to turn there to begin with. I want you to turn to the 78th Psalm, Psalm 78. I want to read to you the passage in 1 Corinthians just so we have that in our in our mind, in our frame of reference as we begin to, to uh, study this again. Paul is illustrating the principle of doubtful things that he began to discuss in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, it's so important to remember the context here because it is very easy to slip off into secondary issues and forget the context. Where we're going with this is that it, Paul is going to warn them to flee from idolatry. So we're going to start off this chapter with this reminder of episodes, a number of episodes having to do with the Exodus generation in about 1440 to 1400 B.C. Then he's going to make application starting in verse 10 through a series of, uh, or actually in about verse 7, through a series of imperatives and subjunctives of prohibition. Then he's going to move into a discussion of idolatry, concluding with a very well-known verse, verse 13, that there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So all of this is leading to that verse and is part of a, the overall context of being willing to do away with certain things in life that may be our rights, may be our privileges, may be perfectly legitimate, but they become distractions either to our own spiritual growth or they become a distraction to a weaker believer who utilizes that as a rationalization for his own sinfulness. Not that we are accountable for every bad decision that some weaker brother might make, and we've gone over that in detail. And we saw that in chapter 9... Paul used his own life as an example. He put the, the, these arrogant Corinthian believers in the position of a weaker brother, put himself in the position of a stronger brother, and utilized the example of the fact that when he was with them as, and pastoring them, that he did not ask for or request any kind of financial remuneration as was his legitimate right. He had a right to do that. He had a right to charge for the gospel, as it were. That's the terminology he uses. Uh, but he forwent that privilege because he knew it would be a problem for that congregation. And then he went to an illustration of the, from the Olympics, from athletics, that was from just secular, the secular culture. And he, and he pointed out that any good athlete recognizes that he's going to have to give up certain practices in life, certain privileges in life, certain things that he has a legitimate right to in life in order to get himself in shape and to follow the rules and regulations required for someone who's going to participate in the games. And he said those who do that are successful and they win the prize, but the ones who don't are disqualified. 
So then in chapter 10, he shifts to illustrate what it means to be disqualified. And for that illustration, he goes to the Old Testament and to the Exodus generation. And he begins by saying, For I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized in Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, that is, manna. This is as far as we got last time dealing with the same spiritual food. Now, we see the Old Testament commentary on the Exodus generation in the 78th chapter of Psalms, the 78th Psalm. And I want to begin in about verse 12. We're going to point this out. Because I want to you to, or I want to emphasize for you the theme that runs through the Old Testament with respect to this particular generation. It's used again and again and again as the paradigm of the failure of the believer in time and his loss of blessing, his loss of privilege, and his loss of reward. The reward is analogous to his entry into the the promised land. Psalm 78, we'll start in verse 12. He, referring to God, wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. That's talking about the miraculous deliverance of the Jews from Egypt and their slavery to Egypt. Verse 13 refers to the division of the Reed Sea. Literally, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea. In Hebrew, it's Yom Suf. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day. And we went back to Exodus chapter 14, and we read the events there where this was a miraculous cloud. It was a pillar cloud. There's no such thing meteorologically as a pillar cloud. So this was a unique cloud that led them during the day, and at night it glowed. With a light of fire. It wasn't actually a fire, but it was the glow of the Shekinah. We know from other passages that this is the Shekinah. It's the dwelling. The word Shekinah is not used in the Old Testament. It was developed by the rabbis to refer to this concept. It is the cognate to the Greek word skene used in John chapter 1, where John says that the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. It means he tabernacled or he dwelt among us. That same word skene referring to dwelling. So Shekinah refers to the dwelling of Jesus Christ with his people. Now the interesting thing is that the Jews from a distance saw this cloud, this glowing cloud. At night it was a fire. During the day it was, was a cloud. They saw the Shekinah. But when Moses, who was the only one who approached the Shekinah, got close, he did not see just the cloud. He saw the person of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in, a, in his pre-incarnate body. How do we know that? Because God says to Moses, I don't speak to the other prophets like I speak to you. I speak to you mouth to mouth. And he talks about the fact that he sees uh, the finger of God. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. But Moses was the only one who saw that, and that glory was miraculously reflected on his face once he left the presence of the Shekinah. 
So the Jews had this evidence, this miracle, day in and day out, of leadership, the guidance of God by the cloud and by the fire at night. Then we saw last time as well, not only did they have a problem with food, but they had a problem with water, which is what we'll spend some time on this morning. And here's the commentary from the Holy Spirit in verse 15. He, that is God, split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. You've got approximately two million Jews wandering through the the desert of Sinai, and they need a tremendous amount of water. And it's not just hitting the rock, as we see in some children's stories, and there's just a nice flow of water there. But these were this was probably a hillside a rock, that was a huge rock outcropping. And when Moses struck the rock, rivers flowed out of the rock, enough to provide uh, more than enough water for two million people. And as we'll see from our exegesis of 1 Corinthians 10, this rock followed them through the wilderness, not the literal rock, it is Jesus Christ. And yet everywhere they went when they needed water, all Moses had to do was strike the rock and there were rivers of water. This wasn't just a one-time event. They're in the wilderness for 40 years. And so verse 15 goes on, or verse 16 says, He brought forth streams also from the rock, caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet, contrast verse 17, despite all of the miracles, despite the supernatural deliverance, despite everything that God has provided for them, they're still negative. They're believers, but they are rejecting his provision. This is typical of every uh, in uh, ungracious believer, ungrateful believer in, in time, that when you go negative to God's word, you always reject his provision. You always look somewhere else for sustenance. So they continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert, And in their heart, that is, in their thinking, they put God to the test. This is the point that we'll see when we come to verses 6 and following in 1 Corinthians 10. The reason I'm spending time on this is because so few people really know their Old Testament. And Paul uh, Paul does a tremendous job of pulling together details from numerous different events in the Exodus generation that I'm afraid if we just quickly summarize some of this, that uh, people would be lost because they don't have an adequate foundation in the Old Testament. So what happens is that after the Exodus, after they go into the into the wilderness, and as they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they put the God to the test again and again and again. This is a mental attitude. That's what's emphasized in this verse, that in their heart they put him to the test. They want to know, can you do this and can you do that? And they just really don't trust God at all. And this is their standard uh, operating procedure throughout that time. And so the first instance of their putting him to the test is by asking for food according to their desire. Verse 19, they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Verse 20, we read, Behold, he struck the rocks, so the waters gushed out. Streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat also? So again, you have this same problem. And we went through the passages last time 
in Numbers chapter 11 where he not only provided the manna but also provided the quail which then becomes uh, which is referenced again in the coming verses. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath. God is judging them. The term wrath doesn't mean anger as we have anger. It is a term for the justice of God acting towards man who is in a rebellious condition. It's a function of the justice of God. Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. This is the key issue. It's not that they weren't believers. We saw last time at the end of Exodus chapter 14 that when the Jews crossed the Red Sea, they believed God, they feared the Lord, and that terminology is is used soteriologically and indicates that by this time the nation is a nation of believers. But what happens is to them is the same thing that happens to uh, many believers after salvation and is the point that Paul is driving home in 1 Corinthians 10, and that is that after salvation believers go into rebellion, they reject the grace provision of God, And instead of relying upon all of the spiritual assets that God has supplied, they go into spiritual failure. Now, God has, now, 1 Corinthians 10 has outlined five assets. First of all, that they were, they were under the cloud, which indicates divine guidance. Then they pass through the sea, which indicates divine Deliverance. Third, they were baptized in Moses, which indicates their identification with God's plan for Israel. The fourth thing that God provided for them was the spiritual food, and the fifth thing he provided for them was the spiritual water. There are five provisions or assets that every Jew had, and this is related to everything, every spiritual asset that the believer has in positional truth. Positional truth refers to our position in Jesus Christ. This is all that we were given at the instant of salvation. And the point that Paul is making to the Corinthians is you have all of these spiritual assets and yet you are carnal. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1. You're carnal. You're not living on the basis of these assets. You continue to emphasize that you have all this knowledge, but it is a knowledge that is not a biblical knowledge, not divine viewpoint. You're still operating on on human viewpoint and the thinking of your past Greek culture. And as a result, you're in arrogance you are going to destroy your own spiritual life just as these Jews did. So there are five spiritual failures here, and once we get past verse 6, we'll see, we'll see the, uh, there are five spiritual provisions here. Once we get past verse 6, we'll see five failures that correspond to these five uh, spiritual assets. Now back to Psalm 78. They did not believe God, and they did not trust in his salvation. Now, the salvation here is not phase one salvation. This is the ongoing deliverance of God through their time in the wilderness. 
This is analogous to the believer living the spiritual life. As you continue to live after salvation, we have to continue to trust in God's provision and his grace uh, provision of assets for the spiritual life. Verse 23, Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat of the bread of angels. This is a description of manna. He sent them food in abundance. God always supplies everything we need for every situation. This is the principle. It is called the sufficiency of God's grace. This is the one doctrine that is under tremendous assault in the church today. The problem that we see in Corinth, the problem we see in in the Old Testament is the same problem that we're going to cover in Second John, uh, John later on this morning, and the same problem we face all the time. It is a problem that the Bible calls worldliness. It uses the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, which is translated world, and we tend, and I tend to call it cosmic thinking. This is the thinking that characterizes man apart from God. Cosmic thinking is all the different thought forms and thought systems that are apart from God, independent of God. They may contain much establishment truth. This is one of the great problems that people have understanding this is you can have cosmic thinking that contains a lot of truth. We'll put a small T here for truth that is related to establishment. By that, I simply mean that it is based on a tremendous amount of uh, morality. You can see this in certain false religions and certain cults, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. They have a rigorous morality. But it's not spirituality. It doesn't impress God. It doesn't get them anywhere spiritually. And even though they may have a tremendous amount of small t truth, establishment truth incorporated in their system, the totality of that system is false and is wrong. And it's evil because of that. Satan understands that he's got to live inside a system that God has created, and therefore to have any measure of success, you have to be as closely aligned as possible to God's system. He knows that if establishment truths are violated, the result is going to be chaos, warfare, destruction, uh, fragmentation of society, and Satan's goal is to produce a, a utopia on planet earth and in human history apart from God. So whenever there's collapse, whenever there's fragmentation, whenever there's destruction of society, whenever there's warfare and and all of the horrible things that we can think of, that is a failure for Satan because he is trying to promote world peace. He is trying to promote uh, harmony. He is trying to promote prosperity all apart from God. So he has to include a certain amount of establishment morality within his system. But the system itself is called cosmic thinking. Now, every single person is born inside the cosmos, inside cosmic thinking, and you are, you are brainwashed 
with cosmic thinking from the day you're born. Your parents brainwashed you with cosmic thinking. Your school teachers brainwashed you with cosmic thinking. Your friends brainwashed you with cosmic thinking. The media brainwashed you with cosmic thinking. And you didn't even know it. Because you, as an unbeliever, had a mentality in your soul that was like a a radio receiver, was tuned in to the cosmic frequency, and you sucked it up like a sponge. Now, there's all kinds of different forms of cosmic thinking. You have religious cosmic thinking, and that that can take any number of different forms. You can have uh, cosmic thinking in India that uh, adopts Hinduism. You can have cosmic thinking in the Middle East that adopts Islam. You can have cosmic thinking in the United States that picks up certain kinds of of, uh, ecumenical religious Concepts. You can have cosmic thinking in pure secularism and evolution that denies God, has an atheistic slant to it. But there's all forms of religious cosmic thinking. Then you have uh, philosophic cosmic thinking, where people are just uh, have picked up various different philosophical systems that they're enamored with because they they uh, stimulate them. So they adopt these secular philosophies, whether it has to do with existentialism, uh, postmodernism, Platonism, whatever the system might be. And and then you have peop- the then you have eclectics. This is where most people fall because very few people take the time and the effort to seriously think through their thinking so that it is internally consistent. They just pick whatever seems to make them smile, and they have all kinds of elements from this system and that system and this other system, and they just try to blend it all together into some kind of hodgepodge that seems to work for them and and make life work apart from God. All of this represents cosmic thinking. Now, what happens under this concept of cosmic thinking and worldliness is you take any believer from any point of the world and they their brain is loaded with cosmic thinking. It has to do with all their cultural values, religious values, moral values, personal opinions, everything else. So the Jews had come up in a system in Egypt. Then what happens is somebody comes along and gives you the gospel, and you have divine viewpoint. But what happens is, in most cases, people take whatever they already have, blend it with divine viewpoint, and you end up with some kind of new system. It's a blend of paganism and divine viewpoint, and it it's not either one. It's not the old paganism. It's not Christianity. It's just this blend. This is why the Bible says that we have to uh, completely renovate our thinking. That means you have to get rid of the old cosmic thought. Now, the problem that the Jews had is they never accepted divine viewpoint. They never accepted God's grace provision completely. And every time they had some problem in life, every time it got difficult, every time they faced some crisis out in the desert, 
they started griping and complaining and grumbling to Moses, and they wanted to go right back to Egypt. They wanted to just dump this divine viewpoint thinking stuff. Let's just go right back to Egypt and where everything was okay and everything was fine and we had security. Because for them, security was much more important than having the freedom that God provided them under grace. And this is always the conflict in human history. Security versus freedom. Now think about that. People can either have security or they can have freedom. When they want security, they want somebody to provide everything for them, and they usually look to the government to take care of them. And when they have freedom, that means that they're personally accountable for all their decisions, and that means that they're going to, uh, if they make bad decisions, then they may end up being a failure in life. Well, nobody wants to be a failure in life, and nobody wants to reap the consequences of their bad decisions, so it's better to get rid of freedom and go back to some sort of security where I'm taken care of from cradle to grave. And that's exactly what happened with the Jews, is they were taken care of in a system of slavery in Egypt from cradle to grave. That's exactly what socialism promises. That's exactly what liberal politicians promise is some sort of security. There is either freedom or there is security. There is no compromise between the two. This is what our founding fathers understood, and they understood it because they got it from the Scriptures. It is only the Bible. It is only Bible doctrine that provides any real understanding of freedom in human history. Nobody got those kinds of concepts until they got it from the Word of God. You had freedom in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, under the theocracy, but the Jews constantly rejected it because they wanted to go back to some sort of system based on human viewpoint. Now, the, the technical word for this is a, a word we'll get into a little more in the second hour, is the word syncretism. And this has been a problem that has plagued believers throughout all of human history, and that's taking one system and joining another, joining Scripture to it, and you come up with something new that's that's uh, just a blend. It's not being uniquely and totally devoted to the grace of God. But this was the problem in Israel. It's the problem today, and that is that people don't want to trust the sufficiency of God's grace. They want to always rely on something else. They'll talk about God's grace. They'll talk about the infallibility of Scripture. But the most important corollary of the of the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility is the sufficiency of grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Inerrancy of Scripture is a doctrine that is derived from the Scriptures that the that the Bible is the revelation from God. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. God is the source of all Scripture and all everything in the Word, and therefore, since God is without error, anything that comes from God is without error. In 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, we know that God the Holy Spirit moved the prophets so that he used human authors, but he oversaw the writing, overrode their volition in a certain way, oversaw the process in some manner when they were writing, so that he guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error. 
That is why the scripture is infallible and can't be broken is because it has its source in God and not man. Now, the corollary of that is that if the scripture is true, then it's also sufficient because the scripture states in 2 Peter 1.3 that God has given to us everything for life and godliness. Not some things, not most things, but everything for life and godliness. This means that you don't need to go out away from the scriptures to find answers and solutions to the problems in life. If you have emotional problems, if you have problems with your parents, if you have problems in relationships, if you have problems in marriage, if you have financial problems, the solution can be found in the Bible and the Bible alone. You don't need to go find some financial counselor. You don't need to go to some marriage counselor. The re- when you end up having to go to some marriage counselor, it's, it's an admission that you have completely failed to apply doctrine in your marriage. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't times when you need a little advice. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the fact that people at times get themselves in a financial trap, they get themselves in some other uh, other situation in a marriage, and they just need you know, to sit down with somebody who's been there, somebody who has the experience, somebody who's a little more mature, and experience and get some wisdom from a mature believer in terms of how to apply doctrine in some particular circumstances. But usually by the time you get into some sort of crisis financially or in your marriage or in some other arena, it's because you have been making bad decisions and not applying doctrine for years. That's why it is a sign that you have been messing up for years and you need to get back to the Word, and the only thing that's going to do that is to take in the Word and learn the Word and make it a priority in your life. It's not just some sort of quick-fix band-aid that as soon as you have some sort of problem in life, well, I'm going to start going back to church, I'm going to show up in Bible class for a while until everything straightens out, and then as soon as it straightens out, well, you don't have time for Bible class or, or doctrine anymore. And that's how too many people uh, handle God. He they just sort of treat the Word of God as some sort of uh, spiritual fetish that if they uh, say the right scriptures and carry around a Bible or pick up, have a doctrinal notebook, that somehow everything's going to be fine and God's going to bless them. The point of Scripture is that God supplied everything you and I need to handle any situation and crisis in life at the instant of salvation. So it's potential. The only thing that activates that potential is your volition to come and sit under the teaching of the Word of God, to study the Word of God, and to make that a priority and let your thinking be completely overhauled, completely renovated by the, by the doctrine in God's Word. This is the principle that the Jews rejected. They rejected the sufficiency of God's grace. God can't take care of us in the wilderness. This isn't enough. And yet when God supplied for them, he always supplied more than enough. It might not have had all of the uh, seasonings and culinary delights of what they experienced back in Egypt, but it took care of their nutrition. And in fact, it took care of it in such a way that it was probably the, the healthiest generation that ever lived because of what they were eating. They ate the best food there ever was. But, oh, it just didn't taste like everything they wanted to have, all their favorite foods that they had had back in, back in Egypt. 
So they were grumbling and they were complaining and they did not trust God on an ongoing basis while they are in the desert. But he always supplied sufficiently and in abundance. Now in verse 26, we have a reference to the event we studied last time in Numbers that God not only, that at one point when they continued to complain about the manna, God brought in an east wind and brought in a superabundance of quail. Verse 26 states, He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind. When he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sand of the seas. There is a superabundance of God's provision. Whatever it is in your life that you're facing, there is a superabundance of God's provision to face and handle any situation in life. Problem is that most people don't understand it because they have a fraudulent view of the Word of God, and they don't understand how the mechanics of the spiritual life function. We'll skip down to verse 29. Verse 29 says, They ate and they were filled, and their desire he gave to them. Now the interesting thing is in Psalm 106.15, we have a, uh, another passage that describes this, and it says that God answered their prayers, but he sent leanness to their souls. Now think about that. God answered their desire. He supplied their desire. But he sent leanness to their souls. They got exactly what they wanted, what they thought they wanted. They got the quail, they got meat, but the fact was it didn't satisfy them because the problem wasn't physical. The problem wasn't that they didn't have meat. The problem was a spiritual problem in their soul, and that is that they had rejected the solution of God. And this is exactly what happens in the life of so many believers that are failures. They're running around looking for happiness, looking for stability. They've rejected that provision of God because just like the Jews in the desert, when God provided manna, after a while they just got bored with it. It's just the same old thing, week in, week out. I'm tired of it. I want something different. They get tired of just going to Bible class. They want excitement when it comes to going to church. They want to have a lot of entertainment when it comes to church. They want different kinds of stimulation. They want a choir. They want special music. They want uh, drama. You go to some of these new churches that are being developed based on the, the whole concept of the church growth movement, which I think is a doctrine straight out of the pit of hell. And... All they get is all this activity that appeals to modern man. See, as an existentialist, modern man wants stimulation. We've thrown out doctrine. We just, we just want to have all of our senses stimulated all the time. We always want to hear something new and see something new. But when it comes to what really counts in life, well, that's too boring. So they have sold their birthright of Scripture in these churches. They may have 5,000 members, 10,000 members. They may have all kinds of campaigns, uh, evangelistic campaigns. They may have, uh, and, and uh, rightly and correctly, they may even see many people saved. But there's no growth. It, it's, they're saved, and whatever blessing there is there from God, is there because they're teaching His Word and God always honors His Word. It has absolutely nothing to do with their mechanics. It has nothing to do 
with their methodology. In fact, they are operating out of the flesh, and they have completely rejected God's sufficient grace. And they've decided that uh, sociology and Wall Street marketing techniques are much more sufficient for spreading the gospel and building a church than reliance upon God and the Holy Spirit. This is the same problem that the Jews had. The result is that sooner or later people are going to wake up in this country and they're going to realize that all of this emotionalism that they have gotten involved in for the last uh, generation has left them bankrupt in their soul. And they will exemplify what is what the Scripture says in Psalm 106.15, leanness in their soul, that there's no real stability. The only stability comes from Bible doctrine in the soul. So in Psalm 78.30 we read, Before they had satisfied their desire, while their food was in their mouth, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. The Jews of that generation went through went came through the, the desert initially at the beginning of the 40 years. They spent a year at Mount Sinai receiving the law. It was during that time, of course, that they uh, rejected God's provision. They got bored at the base of Mount Sinai. They wanted some excitement and some stimulation, so they talked Aaron into melting all their jewelry down and making a golden calf, and so they got into idolatry again. This is what Paul is uh, headed toward in 1 Corinthians 10. They got into idolatry, and they had an orgy at the base of Mount Sinai, and then God disciplined them, and, and several thousand were killed on that particular day. Then when they finally left Sinai and they headed off toward, toward the Promised Land, when they came to, to the border of the Promised Land in the south at a place called Kadesh Barnea, God told them to send 12 spies into the land to check out the land to see how, it's very important to understand directions. Most people never read directions. If you're like most people, you probably get buy something you have to put together, start putting it together, and then figure out it doesn't work, and then you go read the directions. Well, they didn't pay attention. You know, it's a great number 16 is a great example of the importance of biblical exegesis and correct observation of what God says. See, God didn't say, go see if you can take the land. God said, I have given the land to you. Go do a reconnaissance mission to find out how you're going to take the land. See, it didn't have anything to do with if. It had to do with how. They needed to recon the enemy and find out where the fortresses were and where the strength was so that they could develop their strategy and their, for, their, their strategy for taking the land. But they didn't listen. To God, they misinterpreted the word, which is what most people do. They read the Bible, and they have because they're still operating on this problem of the cosmic system plus divine viewpoint. Cosmic system always eats up divine viewpoint, and they end up interpreting the word of God on the basis of these culturally preconceived notions of what Christianity is. And so, what happened is that those Jews went into the land, and they came back, and ten of them said, "We can't do it." See, God didn't say go in there to see if you can do it. He sent him in there to check out 
so they would know how they were going to go about the process of entering the land. And so ten came back and said, we can't do it. There's Number one, there's too many people in the land. Second, there's giants in the land. And third, they have walled cities. So we just can't do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said we can do it because God said we could do it. God's the one who's going to defeat the enemy. It's not us. See, they relied on the sufficiency of God's grace and God's power, that it would be enough. And that's where the faith rest drill comes in. And because the majority of the Jews rejected God's grace provision at that time, that generation was never allowed to go into the promised land. They had to spend the next 40 years until every adult over the age of 20 died. Now, God had to kill them through a variety of plagues and earthquakes and various other things because, as I said, they were physically healthy from the good food they got from the manna. So there were times when 23,000 would be killed in one day. But if you think about 2 million people dying off in, in, the, in the desert over a period of 40 years, you're, have, you're having several thousand funerals every single day as a testimony to the rejection of the grace of God. Death, death, and death constantly reminded them that they were not in the place of life that God had provided for them. So that's the background from Psalm 78 as a nice summation of what took place in the history of, of uh, Israel. So last time we looked at First Corinthians 10.3, that they all ate the same spiritual food, and that is the manna, the provision that God gave us. We all have the same spiritual food. Every single believer in the church age has the same spiritual food in the Word of God. We have access to the Word of God. It is being taught today and it is available today in ways that it has never been available before in human history. There is a superabundance, a superabundance of doctrinal teaching today because of the internet and because of publications and a number of different ministries, and yet people reject it again and again and again. They all ate the same spiritual food, and then in verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. A spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. This is a reference back to Exodus chapter 17, uh, and let's turn back there. We're going. I want to hit the high spots of these these historical references in Exodus and Numbers. Exodus 17 takes place after the deliverance from Israel, after the crossing of the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 17, this is how God supplies water for Israel. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. Notice they're constantly grumbling and complaining. Ingratitude is always a sign of a lack of grace orientation. You'll just think about this. It's simple. 
It's just simple etymology. Simple etymology. The Greek word, or excuse me, the Latin word for grace is gratia. Gratia. This is where we get our English word grace. The Greek word for grace is charis. So the English word for grace derives from the Latin word gratia. Gratia is also the etymological root, notice the G-R-A-T, of the word gratitude. Gratitude is an attitude of thankfulness for the reception of that which we do not deserve. And when we do not have gratitude, it is because we have rejected grace and we are choosing arrogance instead of gratitude. When our eyes are on self instead of on God. And this is why we emphasize grace giving. Grace giving is a giving system that is based on a response of gratitude because we understand everything that God has given us. We understand everything that Christ has provided for us on the cross. Grace doesn't mean, oh, I'm not under law so I don't have to give. I am amazed how many people think that way. And I am astounded and embarrassed as a Christian when I go to a pastor's conference and find out that there were men in this country who could not come to that pastor's conference because it was held in Southern California, and unless a pastor's conference is held in a place where they can drive there, they can't afford to fly there because their congregations don't pay them enough money. And that is an embarrassment, I know, of doctrinal churches in this country where the pastors have to work in order to, in order to support their family simply because their congregations haven't understood that grace means generosity. It doesn't mean how little can I get by with in terms of giving. And it's amazing how many Christians get this idea that, oh, grace means I'm not under law, so I don't need to give 10%. You see, Abraham gave 10% a long time before there was a law. That's not saying 10% is a legislated amount. But 10%, it seems to have been a somewhat generally accepted figure for even a free will offering. See, when Abraham gave, gave tithes, which means 10%, when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, it was a free will offering. In the Old Testament, there were two categories of offerings. There were mandated offerings in Israel, and that was to support the government. That, the government was a theocracy. And there were three levels of tithes. And you, two were given every year and one was given every third year. They supported the uh, Levitical priesthood. They supported uh, the, the uh, widows and orphans in the, in the nation. And they supported the maintenance of the, of the temple. Well, the Le- Levites and the priests were, in effect, the bureaucracy of the theocracy. So that would be comparable to our income tax. But on top of that, there were free will offerings. And free will offerings are a response to God's grace, and the principle is always generosity. It is not how little can I give, but how much can I give. And there is a tremendous, uh, there is a tremendous 
consequence in our own lives when we have the privilege of giving to help others, especially in the realm of the promotion of the gospel, and to see that the money that we have earned is going to the promotion of the gospel in this country, in missions, that people are being saved as a result of that financial support. And it is a matter of priority in putting our emphasis uh, in the right place and understanding grace. One thing that I'm particularly concerned about right now is the support of a seminary like Chafer Seminary. And Chafer Seminary is, uh, this is the first year in 11 years of their existence where they're running a little behind financially. And we need to pray for that. Part of that is because the economy's down and because the stock market is down. A lot of folks who've been very generous in the past uh, don't have all of the resources that they've had in the past to give as generously as they did in the past. And so the seminary is, is falling on some short times. That's always true, and, and it's always a challenge for a new school and a young school. Many people are surprised when I tell them that in 1930, it was 1935 or 1936, the faculty of Dallas Seminary took Lewis Berry Chafer to court because he hadn't paid anybody anything in three years. Remember, that was the Depression, and they didn't have any money. So at least Chafer Seminary is not in that uh, difficult a strait right now. But if we are going to have a future generation of pastors who are trained to exegete the Word of God from the original languages, then we have to have a seminary that is dedicated to solid doctrine and teaching exegetical skills, or we're not going to have doctrine available in the next generation. So that is why it is incumbent upon people to support seminaries and missionaries so that the Word of God goes forth. God uses people, and God uses prepared people, and when there's negative volition toward giving, then that is going to work itself out in the subsequent generations. In Genesis, I mean, in Exodus 17, the people are grumbling and complaining, saying, well, we just don't have enough, and so they don't have any water, so they go to Moses, and there's no trust in God. They're very demanding. That's another sign of ungrateful people. They say, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? Now that is going to come back as a key word in the next section in 1 Corinthians where we see this as their failure. They are testing God. That is, that not that they are tempting God. That's how the uh, English usually translates it, but it's testing God. They are refusing to accept His grace and saying, basically, God, you have to prove you're gracious. Verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of e of Israel. That is, he called the place griping and complaining. 
because of the argumentation, the contentiousness of the children of Israel, and because they tempted, that is, they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In other words, prove it to us, Lord, that you're really here. Numbers 20.10, we have another example of the people complaining about water, and this is where Moses himself will fail. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Numbers 20, verse 10. Then the people thus contended with Moses, or excuse me, um, verse, verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? See, Moses fails at this point. This is why Moses is not allowed to enter into the promised land, is because he finally got fed up with their uh their rebelliousness, and he responds out of anger. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. See, this time he was told to speak to the rock, not to strike the rock. And because you did not believe in me, God says, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you, given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. So these are two different problems. They had three water problems for this generation. The first problem was that they had too much water in the Yam Suf, and the solution at that point was to trust the Lord. Then in Exodus 17, the passage we've just studied, they had a problem of no water, and it was the same solution. That was to trust completely in the provision of the Lord. And then in between, in Exodus 15, a situation we didn't study, they had the wrong kind of water. It was bitter water. And that was when Moses put the tree in the water, and the water sweetened as a result of it. But the solution was, again, to put it in the Lord's hands and to trust in him. This is always the solution, is not to worry about it, not to think about it, not to try to figure it out on our own, but to put things in the Lord's hands and then to leave it there. This was their failure. They did not ever follow the divine solution, and we must always remember that the divine solution is the only solution. The human solution is no solution, and the human solution always leads to failure. And this is what happens in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, this word that is translated laid low in the wilderness is a bad translation. It is the Greek word katastrumi, from which we get our English word catastrophe. Katastrumi, and it means to overthrow, to spread, to strew, or to scatter. 
and literally it should be translated, they were scattered in the wilderness. And it talks about the fact that for 40 years this whole generation died, and their bodies are scattered from Egypt to Kadesh Barnea throughout the desert. They turned Sinai into one enormous graveyard simply because they refused to trust God. Only Joshua and Caleb survived to go into the land. The principle is that they they were saved, they trusted in God for salvation, but after salvation they failed because they continued to operate on the same thinking that characterized them before they were saved. They never accepted doctrine, they never trusted doctrine, they never learned doctrine, they never operated on doctrine, and as a result God disciplined them for 40 years. This is the warning that we get in Hebrews 3, 7 and following. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. In this warning passage in Hebrews, we're warned not to harden our hearts. That is, don't resist the teaching of God. Don't be negative to doctrine as the Jews were. Verse 9, Where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. The rock followed them through the desert, that is, Jesus Christ, supplying water for them again and again, supplying manna for them again and again. They saw these miracles day in and day out. They had seen the deliverance in Egypt. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea, and they kept disobeying God. See, they didn't understand the principle that we are to walk by faith and not by sight, and they just they couldn't walk by sight. They had all of this empirical evidence but nevertheless, they failed to trust God. The result was divine discipline, Hebrews 3.10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. See, it is their thinking. It is the thinking that is the problem. Going back to human viewpoint, pre-salvation, cultural uh, assimilation. They always go astray in their thinking, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They sacrificed their inheritance. They did, were disqualified from winning the prize. That's the same principle of the athlete at the end of chapter 9. Paul says, lest I beat my body into submission. In other words, I rigorously discipline myself so as not to be disqualified at the judgment seat of Christ. So we have to take a warning from this not to become distracted by human viewpoint thinking, not to lose sight of the sufficiency of God's grace, and not to let our priorities be destroyed by the priorities of the world around us. We'll come back and look at the solution in terms of the mandates that are given, the prohibitions and the negative commands given to believers as a result of understanding the uh, example of the Jews in the Old Testament next time, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to understand the sufficiency of your grace. And that began at the cross, where you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He paid the penalty for every sin. No sin was left undealt with. He paid the penalty for every sin in human history, every sin we will each commit, past, present, and future, so that the issue is no longer our sin. The issue is what Christ did on the cross. This is why John 3.18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, 
But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue is Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are not sure where you will spend eternity, if you are unsure or uncertain of your eternal destiny, then the Word of God says you can be sure, you can be certain. There is only one way, and that is to put your faith alone in Christ alone, to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Right now, right where you sit, you can trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. God is omniscient. He knows what you're trusting in for salvation. And at the instant you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, you are born again. You are regenerated. You become a new creature in Christ, and you are given all of the assets necessary to live the spiritual life. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us that we may respond to their challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.